A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. And welcome to Catch Up with Louise Makshari. If you are a returning visitor, thank you so much for coming back to spend time with me. And if you're listening for the first time, welcome. This is a podcast about catching you up on the week. We catch you up on the news stories of the week and the showbiz stories of the week. And then there's always an interview with someone who's got something interesting going on or something interesting to say as well. Um, This week is going to be a little bit of an unusual episode, but we'll get to that first. I hope you had a good week. If not, no worries. We're moving into a new one um, I actually had I had a week of two halves as they might say in football um, I had a great time uh, bringing the kids into the pride march at the weekend and um, just seeing the 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 sheer size of it this year was really moving. Um, obviously, as has been well covered on this podcast, it's been a very difficult time, I think, over the last year for the LGBTQ plus community, particularly the T aspect of that. And it was really moving to see so many people show up and show out uh, to make it clear that, you know, we are mostly a country that is accepting and loving. Um, and it was great to see people using their voices and their bodies and everything else uh, to make that clear on Saturday so that was at Dublin Pride it was really beautiful um, had an absolutely amazing time last night at a an event for the women's national team as they are preparing to go to Australia for the World Cup it was um, a live kind of show I guess um, by off the ball news talks off the ball and uh, kind of hosted by Sky and um the whole team were there and there were loads of girls football teams there, which was just so beautiful. See these young women who are just so excited to be there, so excited to see the team, so excited to see the staff, you know, just just so excited. And um, it really is what it's all about. You know, this is our, our first time that we've had a women's team going to the World Cup and the team is really special. It, that really came across last night, the kind of vibe with the team, the, the mentality of the team is very special. They've got a very special coach in Katie McCabe, who you may remember was on the podcast a year and a bit ago. 
um, who I've been like a diehard fan of ever since. Um, and, and my favorite, I think, part of the night, aside from watching the girls be so excited about the team, was when they had three legends of Irish women's football on the stage. Um, I was going to say they were interviewed, but like, to be honest, there weren't very many questions asked. They just kind of chatted um, because they were such charming and brilliant women. Um, and just kind of telling the story of where women's football has come from and, um, you know, the sacrifices that women have made to play football over, you know, the last hundred years or whatever. Um, they were just brilliant and I want to see them on everything. I think they should be on TV. It was Livia O'Toole, Linda Gorman and Paula Byrne. And um, they had such great stories about the passion that led them to play football, even when it was at their expense, you know, traveling and paying for your own travel and accommodation and, you know, working full time and then spending your whole weekend kind of training and all of the sacrifice that was made because playing for your country was enough of a motivation. It was, it was just really brilliant and moving. And I'm just so, so excited for the World Cup and so excited for this team and what it, what they represent and just yeah all about it all about it feeling super patriotic you know the dark side of my week was unfortunately I've had I have a cyst guys I've had a cyst for 20 years that I didn't have to worry about or bother with and it has become a problem over the last few weeks so I've been dealing with something I'm not going to go into details but it's just been incredibly unpleasant so uh yeah look you can't have you can't have the ups without the downs and I had the ups on the downs at the same time this week um obviously as well I have been absolutely um enthralled is the wrong word but absolutely glued to what has been going on with RTE and I know that lots of you are the same I've heard from lots of you that you were looking forward to this episode because you need some help kind of making sense of what has happened there and why it's so significant so this week I've kind of restructured the episode um because this RTE story kind of straddles the world of entertainment and of course current affairs I decided that we would just combine the uh, showbiz slot which is normally at the end of the episode if you're listening for the first time normally we have the news catch up at the start then we normally have an interview in the middle and then at the end we normally have a, a kind of chat about the entertainment stories of the week and this week I decided to combine those uh, and just do them at the start and um, so basically what, what you're going to hear is a big chunk it's half an hour of discussion about what's happened in Norte and um, I, I hope a clear kind of relatively concise description of what's happened and then a little bit about why it's hard to take um, and my personal kind of views on it all um, and then what you will hear is Eva will bring us a few more important news stories from the week and I will bring you a few notable showbiz stories from the week and then we'll move on to our interview this week who is with um, Mark O'Connell who is a brilliant writer um, and uh, I'll tell you more about him in just a little while. But now we might as well get into it. Don't forget your feedback, your opinions, your thoughts, particularly on this. I would love to hear what you're thinking are welcome. The voice mailbox is 089-209-6423. That's 089-209-6423. That's uh, WhatsApp is there ready for your voice notes. Send them over. And of course, I do use those for the Patreon episode, uh, the monthly mailbag episode. Um which I'm really looking forward to this time around. Um, don't forget the Patreon is there all the time. A new episode went up this week with James Kavanaugh and I discussing Sex in the City, its relevance, its, um, you know, contribution to our culture and to our lives on a personal level and on a, on a more kind of substantial level in 
popular culture. I so enjoyed this chat with James Kavanagh. He is a diehard Sex and the City fan. He had loads to say. He was great on it and um, it was lots of fun. So that's over there available now and there's lots of other episodes there waiting for you too. If you sign up, you have access to all of them. So there is a link in the show notes, but it's just patreon.com forward slash catch up with Louise McSharry. Now though, let's get into it. Let's go. It's time. Journalist Eva Moore and I did our very best. I've rarely felt as much pressure as I have going into a story like this. Um, you know, I really hope that we offer some clarity for you on what's happened if you've been feeling confused. Here you go. It's the news. Well, Aoife Moore, I think it might be fair to say we have never felt under as much pressure to cover something as we do today. The messages I have received from people asking me to explain this. Mm. I got one from another journalist, which I thought was a nice a nice compliment for me, but also a highlight of how confusing this thing is for people. We are, of course, talking about the story about RTE and payments to Ryan Tuberty, um, which has unfolded over the course of the last week. Um, we're going to do, because this is such a big story and it's going to take up a lot of time, what we're doing this week or what I'm doing this week is combining the showbiz section with the news section because this story obviously is involved in both of those sections. So we're going to do a big chunk of time on RTE to start with so that we can hopefully break this down for you and help you understand if you're confused. And I know that I have been hearing from people who are definitely confused. Um, and then we'll move into the normal news stories and then I will bring you the showbiz stories and we will get some of Aoife's delightful reaction to those stories, <laughs> um, and uh, which I know all of you love. Um, so that's basically how things are going to go today. And then afterwards, we will bring you this week's interview um, and uh, and then we will go forth and, and return to normal. I mean, obviously, we will continue to cover this as it is in the news, but um, let's get going. So, Aoife, from the beginning, from, what is happening? From the top, I'm going to take you back to the heady days of 2019, when we didn't even know COVID-19 was a thing. Okay. In November 2019, RTE said they wanted to reduce the salaries paid to all its top contracted on-air presenters by 15%, and Ryan Tuberty, Mr. Late Late, fell into this bracket so talks then started um with ryan tuberty's agent who's a very powerful famous agent in ireland called no kelly and it was agreed back in 2019 that there would be an exit payment for ryan tuberty a 15 percent cut in fees from rte and a reference to a possible commercial agreement to the value of seventy-five thousand euro per year mm -hmm. This is signed and sorted in 2020 and then there is a verbal guarantee. Now this is alleged, a ver alleged verbal guarantee by the Director General at the time, D Forbes, that RTE would underwrite the, the commercial agreement. So what that means is that RTE promised that if anything happened to this commercial agreement, and the pers and the company, which turned out to be Renault, the car company, mm. couldn't pay it. RTE would pay it. Mm. What's important to remember is that D Forbes has only released one statement. And D Forbes is the former director general of RTE. Director general, and she disputes or may dispute a lot of what has been said by the RTE board and whoever else. So there was to be seventy five grand per year. From Renault, Renault would pay Noel Kelly, um, and then he would pay Ryan Tuberty, and then 
um, he would have do some appearances for the car people. Yeah. But. So just to pause at this juncture, um, the way that payments to people like Ryan Tuberty work and, and the way that they worked for me when I worked um, for RTE is that usually, although actually this wasn't the case for me because I didn't have an agent for most of the time that I was with RTE, but usually what would happen is an agent would negotiate on behalf of the talent and I'm using that word in inverted commas because it is the commonly used phrase and it's what's used in contracts and everything um, and that agent is negotiating for the highest possible fee that's their job to make the most possible money for their client and for themselves um, and then whatever's agreed the, the agent would then go back to the person and this is how it works for me now say with the most of the work that I do my agent goes back to me and says okay um, they're willing they, here's the deal here's the deal that they're offering and then you say yes or no and then they go off and and agree it on your behalf and you know most of the time certainly I don't know about the negotiation or the the mm -hmm. kind of workings of that deal you know I yeah. just find out here's here's what they're yeah. offering and obviously you know you're like great <laughs> If you have someone as powerful as Noel Kelly, mm -hmm. uh, Noel Kelly, then Ryan Tuberty very, very also we can't say this for certainty, but very likely wasn't involved in these negotiations either. Yeah, yeah, and so. and the other thing is that then those payments, any payments that you receive, go through your agent, as you said. Yeah. the money so doesn't go directly to you; it goes to your agent, yeah. who then pays you usually a monthly amount based on all of your earnings from whatever that contract and any other contracts you have. Uh, yep. Yeah. So that has explained a lot for me because a lot of people kept saying, how would you not know? How yeah. would you not see an extra 75 grand? But that's not the case. So when the COVID pandemic hit, Renault said that they were not able to make the commercial agreement, to keep the commercial agreement that they had with RTE. And they were, obviously because no one was buying cars in the pandemic, they were cutting back on advertising, all that sort of stuff. And they backed out. Between January and March in 2022, Noel Cayley started chasing RTE for the money and said, you know, listen, there's a contractual obligation here by RTE that we're supposed to get these two payments of 75 grand for 2021 and 2022. An invoice was sent by Noel Kelly. And then a week, couple of weeks later, RTE paid Ryan Tuberty's agent via a British barter account. And on the invoice or the receipt, it, they put consultancy fees. Mm. Ryan Tuberty's name was not mentioned mm. on the on these invoices, and later this has been found to the Grant Thornton report, which we will get to in a minute, said that on the balance of probabilities, this did not reflect the substance of the transactions. Mm -hmm. And what we will come to in discussion is is there is no serious criticism that m much of this had been done to deceive and to hide what these payments actually were yeah because it's it's currently as even i speak it's important to note that like the committee hearings are ongoing i've been watching them all afternoon it's we four o'clock on thursday afternoon so we had to record <laughs> we couldn't couldn't push it any later but um today the financial controller of rte um said that when uh this, these contracts were uh, queried, the consultancy services contracts with Noel Kelly, that he was told that it was for consultancy services by Noel Kelly in terms of structuring RTE during the pandemic. So there was definitely yes. inaccuracies happening there. So why we're talking about it today is RTE will have a risk and audit committee who will look into all their finances every year. In March, the two transactions that went from this English barter account were queried by the auditors. They flagged them straight away and they said, 
mm, this doesn't look right to us. They appointed Grant Thornton, one of the big financial services companies. He do a review, NDRT, ND these payments, and this is how it all came to pass. Initially, the RTE board said that they were made aware of it at the end of March. We now found out yesterday it was actually the start of March. On June the 21st, so that was eight days ago, we find out, well, on June 21st, D Forbes, who was the director general, was suspended by RT, and then the next day it comes out to the staff, it starts filtering out that Ryan Tuberty had been paid more money than had been publicly declared because I think that's people what people need to also remember is that RT, because they are public service broadcasting, have to declare the wages of their top earning presenters. Mm. And when they were declaring the wages what they were saying Ryan Tuberty made was not what he made he was being paid 75,000 euro extra per year for the last number of years so that's the real crux of the issue is that it's misinformation and that it seems it appears that there was an intentional kind of non-disclosure of this additional 75,000 euro and as you say like this this first came was was revealed to staff via an email then it was revealed to the the wider kind of media that this had happened um you know it was Ortiz themselves that released that this had happened yeah and then now we have just had statement <laughs> after statement from RTE, from D Forbes, from Ryan Tuberty. Ryan Tuberty is currently off air. Yesterday, the head of content was unable to say if Ryan Tuberty will be back on air. So although he had already left the Late Late Show, he still has his radio show. At the minute, he's not on air. He's also still in a contract negotiation for the radio show, and that negotiation has also been suspended. Ryan Tuberty, Noel Kelly, and Dee Forbes have all been invited to the uh, Sports Iraq, uh, sports and Media Oireachtas Committee. So far, Dee Forbes has said that she won't be attending because of health reasons. Ryan Tuberty and Noel Kelly haven't responded. The Taoiseach said that he wants to see all three of them mm. in front of the committee. They are invited. They do not have to go. There is a way to legally compel them, but it is very rare. Mm. Um. So today and yesterday, the board of RT appeared. Um, among along with some others, in front the of the executive board. Yeah, yeah. It was yesterday was the the media Arachis committee. Today was the public accounts committee. Um, I have never. Ever. Even Alan Kelly said this. Alan Kelly said, I have been knocking around these halls for a long time and this is the most extraordinary meeting I've ever been at. Mm. The CFO said he did not know his own salary. Yeah, I mean, look, it's been wild. I've been watching all day. It's kind of almost impossible to look away, I find it. Um, You know, it's... I mean, friends of mine on WhatsApp have been like, I never, ever, ever want to get called in front of one of these committees. And I mean, I feel the same <laughs> because yeah. like, it's scary. Like, it's scary. Yeah, and it's you, terrifying. The process- like things, but even the notion that our public service broadcaster, for instance, they said the, the deal in which they would underwrite Ryan Tuberty's contract for the 75,000 euro a year was made over Microsoft Teams. It was a variable agreement and there's no recording of it and no minutes kept. Yeah. 
That's, I mean, what this is throwing up is lots of organizational issues within the management of RTE. That's, that's what's happening. It's not just one thing. It's lots of different things. It's lots of different question marks and lots of, lots of valid questions have been asked by the committees of the executive board of RTE. And by the way, the board of RTE and the executive board of RTE are two different things. So the board are like kind of, um, you know, would be like kind of figurehead type people and then the executive board are the people who actually run the company. Run the so people yeah. like, um, you know, the director general and the head of legal and the head of commercial. And, and those are the executive board of Ortiz. So there are two different things which I think can be confusing for people. Um, mm-hmm. And the people who are there today and yesterday are largely the executive board, or are, although there are representations, representatives there from the, the general board as well. Um, and it is obvious that there are major issues with the running and management of RTE and um, a lack of information and communication if if everything is to be believed. And yeah, as you said, the uh, financial controllers had a particularly bad day today, I think. Um, when he was asked his salary, he didn't initially want to disclose it, said it was private. Then he was pushed on it because um, they said, you know, look, we have, we have people in here all the time. The then he said he didn't know. And then he gave an estimation. It's just not a great look. Um, it was also then heard that when um, RTE told journalists, uh, actually the new uh, chair of RTE told the Six One that Dee Forbes was on holiday. She had already been suspended. Mm. The head of RTE then did not tell the minister that uh, she had asked Dee Forbes to resign a week earlier and Dee Forbes had refused. Mm. Then was under disciplinary protocols and then was suspended. All of this was done without telling the minister in charge of media um it has been a real i think this will be like one of these cultural touchstone moments in that everyone has such a heartfelt at times cultural connection to rte but maybe it's just you know us in the media and because we have a lot of people that we love who work there but for me i have always known that the practices in which they use um, when it comes to employment, you are very different, very different from other companies. Mm. And I think I can't see this going away in terms of I think the whole structure will have to be overhauled. And they did say that they are going to reconstitute mm. the executive board of RT now because morale is through the floor. Trust is completely mm. lost. The notion that the CFO was able to stay, like look at TV in the eye yesterday and say, well, that commercial decision had nothing to do with me. I didn't know anything about it. Mm. When he is the financial controller of the station. Mm-hmm. And he said, well, that was commercial. That wasn't financial. Mm. And Amelda Monster from Sinn Féin said, well, did you think they were paying Ryan Tuberty and Jelly Tots? Because, <laughs> because if it's money, surely you should know. Um, It has been... Even in Leinster House, people can't get over it. And I think the starkest thing was when RTE released a statement on said, basically in their statement said that the only person who was in charge of this was D Forbes and the only person who knew was D Forbes. The Taoiseach said during leaders' questions that he didn't believe it. Yeah, so let's let's just talk a little bit about the D Forbes of it all. So D Forbes is a financial or is the director general of RT or was the director general of RT oh, yeah. up until this week, um, yeah. and she was on her way out though. She was just about yeah. to finish up. She had resigned already. Um, mm-hmm. There's a new incoming. Uh, Director General of Orti who's starting on the 10th of July his name is Kevin Backhurst he's someone who has not worked for Orti for a number of years but did work for a long time for Orti so he's very familiar with the organisation and at the opening of the committee meetings today Adrian Lynch who's the current interim Deputy 
director general, who is so basically the guy who's in charge at the moment, said that he had spoken to Kevin Backers last night. And Kevin Backers said that his kind of first order of business was going to be to reconstitute the board. So Kevin Backers Mm -hmm. is coming in. I mean, it's good that there's someone new coming in, but I think he's coming in like ready with all guns blazing, ready to kind of take this on, which, you know, is not a job I would want. No. So I'm just going to read out Adrian Lunch's statement about D Forbes and everything that happened with Ryan Tuberty because mm. I would like to remind people that D Forbes has not commented on this mm. and I am going to guess that she has some a lot of disputes in what was been said. Hasn't commented she on said, this statement by the way she has yeah. commented in general yeah. No member of the RTE executive board other than the director general D Forbes had all the necessary information to order in order to understand that the publicly declared figures for Ryan Tuberty could have been wrong. He added that Ms. Forbes had not had the opportunity to respond to the details set out below and may therefore challenge or disagree with our understanding or and position. Mm. What they are saying is this multi-million euro company public service broadcaster could agree to give away hundreds of thousands of euro in a Zoom call with a verbal agreement that no one took notes of and she didn't have to run it past anyone else if that is true and we don't know if it is true that says more about the structure yeah. of RTE than anything else yeah there have been huge questions for a while now but in this last week now about the governance of RTE mm. and I mean I, I think the 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 tone of D Forbes resignation statement um says a lot you know read that uh sure okay so in a statement on monday which was the last time we heard from d forbes she said that she had engaged with and consistently cooperated with the processes directed towards answering questions surrounded by the payments surrounded payments to rent property as director general i am the person ultimately accountable for what happens within the organization and i take that responsibility seriously i am tendering my resignation to rt with immediate effect so that was on Monday and then do you want to read the no you do it you do it so it was a very long statement where she gave her explanation of what happened with Ryan Tuberty and then she said finally I want to reiterate that I've engaged fully with the board during this process however the board has not treated me with anything approaching the level of fairness equity and respect that anyone should expect as an employee a colleague or a person and all of this has had a very serious and ongoing impact on my health and well-being I am deeply sorry for what has happened in my part in this episode. And for that, I apologize unreservedly to everyone. I care very deeply about RTE, the people who work for it, the public it serves, its mission, values, and unique position as a public service broadcaster. Mm. So I think she has admitted that there has been um, an issue. We can't call it a deception. That hasn't been proven, but she has admitted her part in it however i think when we take away when you take a step back from that statement it's very clear that she has a very different view yeah it's happened here it seems very likely anyway like i mean it seems very very likely and you know i we were speculating earlier about like you know do we think d forbes is watching the committee hearings and i think yes and is she watching maybe with the solicitor and i think that's also possible yeah. like it's going to be really interesting to see how this we all did. falls out we actually did hear today from the RTE solicitor who said that they are now already already in litigation and they are aware of potential litigation. Of course they are. 
Of course they are, because there's a question here of the way that Renault is being portrayed. There's a question about the mm -hmm. damage that's being done to Ryan Tuberty's reputation. There is a question well, of... Forbes. Exactly. So, like, you know, who knows what the fallout from this is going to be. It's going to be long and it's going to be complicated. And, like... I'm going to editorialize a little bit here now because obviously for me watching this, it's been really interesting as someone who worked in RTE for 11 years as an on-air person contracted. Um, talent. You know, yeah, talent is the phrase. Obviously that's used, which is, you know, another conversation about the appropriateness of that term. But, um, you know, from my perspective, I, I feel for Ryan Tuberty to be honest, it has been continually said both by Grant Thornton and by Orti themselves that Ryan Tuberty has no wrongdoing in all of this. Ryan has admitted, and I think it's, he was right to say this, that yes, mm -hmm. he should have joined the dots when he saw the number that was in the paper versus what he yeah. was getting. And that's true. And he should have, but he's admitted that. But he mm -hmm. wasn't, I don't believe, involved in any intentional deception. I don't think you know, I, I don't think it's fair to him that he is now being used as one of the faces of this situation when it actually, highly, sorry. well, I was just going to say when, when actually the problems are clearly, you know, deeper than Ryan Tuberty. It's highly, highly, highly unlikely that Ryan Tuberty knew anything about a barter account, about invoices with consultancy fees written on them. Like mm. there has, it wasn't even written mm. on the invoices. Mm -hmm. So although, you know, people are very, very, shocked and saddened about Ryan Tuberty because he is obviously beloved by so much of the nation. He has said, I should have asked more questions yeah, because I knew that those numbers weren't right. But in the grand scheme of things, the, you know, the official report has said it. RT has said it. Mm. He actually didn't do anything wrong. Yeah. And I think it's been really interesting because obviously he's been taken off air. He said himself he'd like to be on air. And I think that would be the best possible thing for him would be to be on air and to, you know, take what people have to say and, and deal with that criticism. I think a lot of the ill feeling toward Ryan Tuberty now has to do with the amount that he is paid, you know, which is yeah. an ongoing thing that people have an issue with, with how much presenters in RT are paid. Exactly. It's, it's, that's not new. It's been there for years. Every time that salaries come up people get annoyed about it this is another opportunity for people to be annoyed about it and I think that that annoyance is valid people have a right to question these salaries I would argue that you know not necessarily salaries this high but what people I think don't take into account when they talk about RT presenters salaries particularly the people at the top level and it's important to remember that most RT presenters are not being paid at that level like the difference between the top salary in the top 10 earnings and the bottom salary in the top 10 earnings is substantial so you can imagine how substantial the difference between the bottom of the top 10 earnings and the rest of the staff are and even on-air staff yeah so a point was made today that the starting salaries for a researcher on the late late show is thirty-one thousand euro and then when you hate you have the pinnacle mm. like the highest salary for a tv researcher at the late late show is 56 grand yeah so you know, and like we saw the NUJ and hundreds of journalists and staff from RT are protesting mm -hmm. and they, you know, lamented sometimes they're on cameramen for shifts. They are using old and broken equipment. They've had a pay freeze. They've had pay cuts. Yeah. And then they find out that just one person was treated differently because of who 
they were. Well, it's the fact that, that they're that the this thing. this additional payment would cover you know a, a researcher and a half at the top level. You know that's mm-hmm. pretty wild when you consider it that way. Like, look, I mean, obviously, I have personal feelings about this, and um, and it's difficult for me. You know, I have really tried not to talk about RT much since I finished up there because no matter what I say, there will be people who will say it's sour grapes because obviously I did not yeah. leave on a happy note and I was not treated appropriately, and I very much empathized actually with D Forbes um, references to how she was treated and feeling like she wasn't treated um, as someone, you know, with respect or as a colleague, you know, all of that stuff, I felt very sympathetic toward. Now, it's tough to take from D Forbes, given the fact that I emailed her at the time that I felt that way. And I did not even get a response from her. It's very hard for me to be overly sympathetic. But as a human being, I am naturally empathetic. So I do find it in myself. But like, you know, genuinely for me looking at this, it's not a matter of sour grapes. I am sour and I've written about this actually for the for the Indo on Saturday if people want to read more. I am sour, but I'm sour on behalf of all of my colleagues and all of the people who I worked alongside for 11 years. You know, I was not one of the top earners. I know how hard it is in there. I worked on my own for eight of the 11 years that I worked there. I produced a show, presented a show, did everything for it on my own. I did not have a producer. I did not have a researcher. You know, meanwhile, there are other shows that have massive teams, you know, that you could argue are are over the top. Like the distribution of resources in there is questionable. People are being told all the time there's no money. There's no money for a crew. There's no money for you to cover this story. There's no money for you to do that. And then today we hear, you know, that more than 100,000 euro in that Barter account was used to send people away to the Rugby World Cup, client people, like, you know, so, and, and I appreciate that's the way business works and you have to spend money, you know, on that kind of stuff sometimes in order to get money. I get it, but it is really hard. And what we're talking about is a staff of people who have been working their asses off, not for money, because the money is not that good, because they love what they do and because they love RTE. And, and you know, this is what it comes down to, I think, is that the management of RTE are essentially caring for an organization that is bigger than them. It is bigger mm-hmm. than a commercial company. It is bigger than most of the organizations that we have in this country because it is part of all of us. You know, we all have memories and, you know, family moments and, you know, our culture is, in many parts is made up of things that have happened on RTE and whoever mm-hmm. is managing that is is just a caretaker of an organization that is bigger than yeah. them. So to hear that it is being so mismanaged is just heartbreaking for everyone but for the staff who are busting their asses every day who are often underpaid who are often overworked and whose work has become more and more and more difficult in recent times it is just sickening you know and when you work for RT this is something that I really I really want people to to kind of understand when you work for RT you spend your life defending RT because mm-hmm you know, everybody has an opinion about everything that RTE does, right? And that's fair enough. So you just, you defend the scheduling. Why won't you fix the RTE player, <laughs> Why, why do they make these programs? Why are there so many American TV shows? Like, yes, why won't, why is the RTE player so bad? Why is this person on air? Why don't they spend more time on this? That's part of working for RTE because you're working for something that is for the public. So everyone in your life is going to have an opinion and you spend a lot of time talking about it and listening to people talk about it and defending it. And, you know, that's part of it. But when something like this that is so 
indefensible happens. Yeah. I think for a lot of people, it is just just the thing to push them over the edge. And I am mm-hmm. so delighted that the staff of RTE have felt so empowered to speak out this week and to say how disgusted they are about this. And it's given them the opportunity to raise problems that have been there for years. You know, mm-hmm. people are saying enough is enough. And my hope is that you know, Catherine Martin, um, who is the minister in this area, has announced a cultural review as well as a, a review of governance of RTE. And it's the culture that needs to be investigated because it is absolutely toxic at the top. It is. We know this for a fact now. You'll be there with your notepad and pen. Oh, ready to go. Well, I just I just want better for RTE, for, yeah. for the organization itself, for what it represents, for the people of Ireland and for all of the people who are in there working so hard. They deserve better. I have not met a single colleague since I left who has not immediately. And yes, I accept that, like, obviously people are going to want to tell me their horror stories because I left in a horror story. But like everyone I meet has something to tell me, some horrible exchange, something awful that's happened in their line of work that should not have happened. The kind of thing that makes you go, how is that person still there? How, why do they keep getting more power? Like Mm -hmm. it's, it's sick. It needs help. And my hope is that this is going to be a major turning point for RTE because I want RTE to succeed and everyone in there wants RTE to succeed. Mm-hmm. I need to take a breath. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man, I just have so many feelings about it. You know, it's it's yeah. tough. I feel for, I really feel I have to say I really feel for Ryan Toberty. I really feel for him mm-hmm. in a big way. Me too. And I feel for all of my colleagues who are still just trying to do the work. And like, I mean, how amazing have the newsroom been? Can you imagine been? what it's like having to go on there today, tomorrow, Saturday, do the weekend politics on Sunday? Yes. It'd be like, I am busting my arse for yous, knowing that you stood this, mm-hmm. knowing that you lied to me. Mm-hmm. Lied to everyone. Yeah. And I think, you know, they have done such an incredible job, such an incredible job of covering this story the from prime time to the RTE, news to avoid the RTE yeah. has been absolutely brilliant. Prime time the other night with Mark Coughlin explaining mm-hmm. even things if people can go back and watch it in the RTE player. Lol. Um, <laughs> go back and watch prime time. Mark Coughlin explains barter accounts. He explains everything that happened. Um, it's really, really good. I would also say as well, just in case, because we forgot to mention this, Paddy Kildee. The new presenter yeah. lately has released his salary. He's going to be paid two hundred and fifty thousand euro for thirty episodes. Mm-hmm. He has asked. He has waived the accommodation and travel expenses. He's going to pay that himself, but he has asked RT to offset his carbon mm. for that travel. And he, I thought his statement was really excellent. It was clear. It was concise. It was what it needed to be. And, you know, I think it's good as well that there is someone new coming in there, um, you know, with a new tone a and, and and from, from outside RTE. You know, honestly, yeah. I really that's feel like thing. that's what we need to a certain extent. Not that RTE isn't full of great people. And I think that people in RTE should get opportunities. But I also think that there needs to be some new, new blood at the top as well, um, in my personal opinion. Okay, I've said, I think I've said enough now. Um, you know how I feel. <laughs> you can read more about it in The Independent. Um, <laughs> uh, but but basically, yeah, I mean, I think, you know, the reality is everybody wants what's best for RTE. And unfortunately, the management appear to have lost their way. And, you know, things just need to be brought back on course. Okay, let's move on to other news because there was another news story happening this week that people were talking about and I was like, I do not have time for you. I cannot check in with you right now. I am fully consumed by Orti and what's going on there. So what in the world happened in Russia with the Wagner uprising? 
I was bait and do this. And I have like, and I'm sure a lot of people have too, um, not that I've checked out of the Ukraine-Russia war, but you know at the start when you like every bombing campaign, every city, like we were all about it. And it kind of, I think it's the same as COVID. You kind of start compartmentalizing so you can kind of like get on with the rest of your life. Yeah. So Russia was 24 hours away from a civil war this week. When everyone else was worried about Ryan Tuberty, I was worried about Russia. <laughs> so, like everything else to do with Russia and Putin, this is a totally bizarre story. But the shortened version is, there is this guy, <laughs> he used to be a chef, who <laughs> cooked dinner once for Vladimir Putin. Then he has been kind of everything at one point, but he's a bit of a wheeler dealer, a bit of a cowboy. He owned a catering company. He cooked for Putin and he founded his own private army. Of course. <laughs> so um, the Wagner Group is a private army that supports, did support Russia. Um, and they have carried out operations in Ukraine. It is not, what's the word? It is not publicly operated by Putin. Mm-hmm. Is publicly operated by Yevgeny Prigozhin, who's in charge of it. So this week, Yevgeny Prigozhin has been very critical of the Russian army mm-hmm. up until this point, but with a, you know, with a caveat, still supporting them. But people had pointed out, like, no one is allowed to criticize the Russian administration, but this guy always is. This week, he took it further. He said the defense minister. Of Russia, Sergei Shugu. Oh my God, this uh, my pronunciation is next level. Um, he said that he was a scumbag, and that he was a craven PR man and an oligarch who had never held a weapon in his life. Mm-hmm. He basically has said that Russia is allowing his troops to die, Russian troops to die. That they said that they had, um, there was going to be uh, a NATO attack on Russia and that they were not prepared of it and um, prepared for it, sorry. And this feud escalated over a couple of weeks and then he lost his shit with Putin's administration. Now, mm. he never specifically went after Putin, but he was posting videos of his private army, what they were dealing with. He said that, you know, this was traitorous to Russia. He said that then he then started claiming that Russia's defense ministry were carrying out attacks on his people. Mm. He said that they were bombing his own army and then he had had enough. And then in he he does a lot on social media. There's a lot of men and their men and their TikToks, <laughs> men and their podcasts. So he then decided that he was going to stage a coup and he began marching thousands of his troops. De Moscow. This is like unheard of. Like the apparently the Kremlin were absolutely stunned. It is the biggest challenge to Putin's authority since he became president in the year two thousand. He um basically was offered him on, as we say in Derry, for a fight and wanted to take over the Kremlin. Right. The next then, obviously Putin um was incredibly freaked out, and this guy would know how to rattle Putin because they were actually in the KGB at around the same time. Okay. And they're kind of cut from the same cloth. Anyway, Putin addressed the nation on Thursday 
and he said that he looked pretty shook. Now, I don't know what Putin looks like on a good day, but he looked pretty shook. He accused Wagner grip of endangering the Constitution and committing treason. He promised harsh punishment and legal uh, ramifications for those who had caused a mutiny. And then they built barricades Mm. around Moscow and that, well, Ukrainian intelligence said that Putin fled north. Mm. So, like, we need to understand this. Like, Putin was on the run Mm. from these people. Like, that's how scared he was. Mm. Um, And then there came a twist when Belarusian president... Lukashenko, who is an ally of Putin, he's kind of the last dictator left that is still friends with Putin. Mm-hmm. Um, and he said that the rebellion was off. He mm. got involved. The rebellion was off. He had brokered a peace deal and he would offer Wagner people, main people, amnesty in Belarus. So the leader of the Wagner group, Prigozhin, left Russia and went to Belarus. It is almost certain that Putin told Lukashenko please tell him he needs to leave this country Mm. and so he has arrived in Belarus now and the coup is over but this is the most rattled the Putin has ever been in 23 years in power and the concern in the EU now today the president of the EU commission was out and said a rattled Putin is not good news for us Mm. it's not good news for Ukraine that man is very insecure he's very insecure in his masculinity this could get very bad for Ukraine because he's on the back foot now. But it has exposed how weak the Russian army actually is and how reliant the Russian army is on outside private mm. individuals rather than their own forces. God, it's absolutely wild. You just have to wonder, like, how long is this going to be allowed to go on for? Like, I don't know. And, like, because NATO obviously don't have boots on the ground and they've mm. obviously, like, they're arming Ukraine, but they're not sending them their trips. So it mm. could go on for years well we will continue to report now briefly Aoife can you explain to me why are Koreans younger all of a sudden this is this I've is never wild. heard of this this is mental yeah so people in Korea have become a year or two younger over the course of a night because the new law aligns the nations to traditional age counting methods to international standards so traditionally in South Korea you are one year old when you're born because they count your time in the, in the womb. womb. Okay. Yeah. So they there was another way of doing it. I think it's a regional thing, but the other way of doing it was you age by a year every first day of January instead of counting on their birthdays. Okay. Very, very strange. But basically the president uh, pushed strongly for this change when he ran for office because he said the traditional age counting methods created unnecessary social and economic costs. This probably isn't something that translates very well when you're doing trade or looking, you yeah. know, employment or anything like that. So it was the Korean age system was when you turn one at birth and you gain a year on the 1st of January. So if you were born on the 31st, you will be two years old the next day. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So then so, overnight they've said, nope, we're going to do it no, like everybody else does. Anymore. Wow. So three and four Koreans uh, voted in favor of the standardization uh, when they did a poll last January. And they said it'll help break down Korea's hierarchical structure and the subconscious layer of ageism in people's behavior. And they said that it's uh, it's just bringing them in with international 
standards. Um, okay. One resident said, I love it because now I'm two years younger. My birthday is in December. So I always felt like this Korean age system is making me socially older than I actually am. Yes, fair play. Okay, I love it. I did not know that. That's so interesting. So interesting. Okay, well, we're going to park news there. And now it's time for me to tell you some showbiz stuff. I'll be honest, there's not actually loads and loads to talk about this week. But one of the big things that happened for Lana Del Rey fans. Why would you say that to me? Because I don't know. So I could be like, Jesus, we are chock-a-block. <laughs> well, I mean, there's always something to talk about. But like, yeah. you know, obviously... Um, Orti and Ryan has been taking up a lot of space. But some other things that happened this week in the world of entertainment. Lana Del Rey announced a surprise last minute Dublin gig at the Three Arena. Um, I saw this. Do we know why it was so last minute? No, she uh, like, well, apparently she said her experience at Glastonbury made her decide to play a few more shows. Um, And one of the shows that was announced was a Three Arena gig on July 7th. But the thing is, like, she was already playing in Hyde Park on July 9th. So all the Irish Lana fans. Because like Lana fans, I don't want to stereotype because I count myself as a Lana fan. But like these are people that if they want to see her, they would make type. No one casually listens to Lana Del Rey. No, exactly. We're all sad girls vaping, you know? (laughs) Exactly. So loads of Irish Lana fans had already bought flights, uh, paid for accommodation, planned an entire weekend around going to London on July 9th, which is next weekend, obviously. Um, And now they're all like, seriously, because they're also the kind of people. They changed their hands preferences. They were looking for older daddies. (laughs) Exactly. And they'd all, uh, but they're also not the kind of people who can just be like, well, I just won't go in Dublin because obviously they're like, if Lana's in Dublin, no, I have to go and see her. Find their London sugar daddy in London. Yes. So basically, Lana Del Rey has made all of her fans broke. Um, that is that is one thing. The tickets will be gone by the time you listen to this, probably because they go on sale yeah, tomorrow morning at nine a.m. Well, no, nine a.m. tomorrow morning. So if you um. I think there's some pre-sale. We come out at six, don't we? So yeah. yeah, if you're an early listener, they might not be gone yet. But uh, if you listen at twenty past nine, I'd say they'll all be gone. Um, so yeah, very exciting, exciting times for Lana Del Rey fans, or devastating times depending on what your budget's like. Sure, they love devastating times. That's why they listen. To well, <laughs> you're absolutely right. Um, okay, then Lewis Capaldi. Um, obviously it was Glastonbury last weekend, and mm-hmm. there was loads of Glastonbury stuff around. But for me, the big show at Glastonbury was Lewis Capaldi. N- not because I'm a massive fan of Lewis Capaldi's music. I don't have a problem with it, but it's just not my favourite. But I have yeah, it's fallen... Mammy, it's mammy music. Yeah. But I've fallen completely in love with him as a person, as I think a lot of us have, both through him just being generally hilarious and charming and also his recent documentary for Netflix, which yeah. obviously I did a whole episode about on the Patreon. If you haven't listened to it, I recommend it. Um, where it basically... It was supposed to be following him making his second album, but what it ended up being about was a really, really really bleak period of mental health for him and ultimately a diagnosis of Tourette's and severe anxiety. Mm-hmm. Um, and the way that it manifests itself for him is in a like a, a very significant shoulder, physical twitch. Yeah, yeah, a shoulder twitch and, and other other things. But um, the shoulder twitch was, was giving him like very significant pain and really impacting yeah. him when he was on stage, making it hard for him to sing. Um, and, you know, some of the scenes in the Netflix documentary are really quite upsetting. Yeah, yeah, I find it quite hard to watch. And you can see, because he's so close to his parents, mm. you can see there's parts of it where his dad's getting quite frustrated because they don't realize that it's um, Tourette's at the time. He hasn't had the diagnosis yet. Yeah. His parents are, you know, you're just not looking after yourself. Yeah. You know, that sort of stuff. Yeah. And uh, you can tell he's in a lot of pain and frustration yeah um, so, so i think anyone who watches it is quite you know i think everyone just falls in love with them 
Absolutely. And, you know, he cancelled gigs in the run up to Glastonbury because he wanted to be in kind of peak condition. He gave himself three weeks of no gigs and he came out and I think everybody was hoping that he'd be in great shape, but he wasn't. And he really struggled. He had to ask the crowd to kind of help him sing the songs, um, which they did beautifully. Um, But you could see him physically struggling. And I think a lot of people, I definitely felt like you know, I, I wanted him to just take a break and take care of himself. And that is exactly what he's doing. So he has said, uh, first of all, thanks to Glastonbury for having me, uh, for singing along when I needed it and for all the amazing messages afterwards. It really means the world. He said, the, f- this, the fact that this probably won't come as a surprise doesn't make it any easier to write. But I'm very sorry to that. You know, I'm going to be taking a break from touring for the foreseeable future. He says, I used to be able to enjoy every second of shows like this and I'd hoped three weeks away would sort me out. But the truth is, I'm still learning to adjust to the impact of my Tourette's. And on Saturday, it became obvious that I need to spend much more time getting my mental and physical health in order so I can keep doing everything I love for a long time to come and you know good for him yeah and the thing is for him personally I'm delighted that he's doing this I mean delighted is the wrong word I mean I wish he didn't have to do it but I'm glad that he is doing it I'm glad that he's going to take care of himself in this way but I also think it's a great example to set for all his fans that it's okay to take a break it's okay to say you know what I'm not doing great and I'm gonna step away and that that's actually a really healthy thing to do and that there's no shame in it you know once upon a time pop stars weren't allowed to do this kind of thing of course and look what happened to pop stars and like when people we talk about people like Britney Spears and Ariana and Amanda Bynes and people who, you know, were worked, did these crazy schedules and then had issues later in life. Mm. As our friend Molly always says, rest is radical. A hundred percent. I would do everything in bed if I could. <laughs> in a society that wants you to consume more and work more, resting is radical. No. Aoife's in bed right now. Um, <laughs> okay. <laughs> Wait. A <laughs> uh, couple of quick things to finish up on. Um, there was some kind of scary news for Madonna fans. Um, Madonna... Oh, yes. uh, has had an illness um, which resulted in her being in intensive care. Her agent manager, Guy Osiri, who's been with her for years, basically said that um, they she had been unwell. She developed a serious bacterial infection which led to her staying several days in the intensive care unit. He said her health is improving. However, she's still under medical care and a full recovery is expected, but they've had to pause her tour. So full recovery is expected so we can kind of, you know, take take mm. heart in that, but obviously scary to hear. And then finally, a number of new members of the Academy, as in the Academy Awards, have been announced. And there's a few Irish people in there, which is always very exciting. Hmm? Taylor Swift, one of them. Taylor Swift is one of them, not one of the Irish yeah, I ones. Yeah, I thought I saw that on Instagram and I was like, surely that can't be right. Yeah, I know. It's wild. Um, I don't know. Uh, Paul Meskel is <laughs> one. <laughs> what? You look like you had a bad piece of salmon. Well, I just, I don't really understand it, but like fair play. Um, Paul Meskel, my boyfriend. Paul Meskel, your boyfriend, sure. Um, Kerry Condon, uh, who obviously were both nominated for Academy Awards last year, Irish actors, um, have been uh, become members of the Academy. Also, Colin Barade. Bar- Bar- is, that, is that how you pronounce it? Yes, yeah. thank God. Every time I say an Irish word, I, can't, I panic. Cardin Keown, the director. Yes, he's the director, exactly. Um, and he is also um, a new member of the Academy. He's basically been offered membership by multiple branches, either as a director or oh. a writer. So he gets to choose. He says he's uh, very honoured, which I'm sure he is. Um, an Irish cinematographer who also worked on Colin Keown, Kate McCullough, has also been invited to join. Um, oh, I love that. Yeah, also filmmakers Tom Berkeley and Ross White, who made the short film An Irish Goodbye. It's, there must be, like, no offense to these people, but, like, there must be loads of members. How many members? Well, there is. There's hundreds. 
And but it's also a big responsibility. You have to watch all those films. Not that well, I, I mean they don't, don't watch all of the films. Well, no, that's all, that's one of the main issues every year just because Meryl Street for everything. <laughs> yeah, but like they say that because um you know that's one of the big issues every year because they're like you can't possibly watch all the films so how can you fairly nominate um mm-hmm. which is a fair question so apparently there's like about 10,000 11,000 members um which is wild so anyway good for them delighted for them um enjoy watching your films and thus concludes our bumper is Nail, Nail Meskel do you think Nail Meskel re- listens to the podcast no I think she probably would. She seems like our type. I don't think she follows well, us. Well, if Nail, if you're listening, could you tell your brother to reply to my DM? <laughs> <laughs> I'd say nobody ever, ever asks her for things like that. I'd say you're the no. first person ever to, to ask something like that. She... I just really thought he would reply because he would see my blue tech and be like, maybe this is important. No, she doesn't follow. She doesn't listen to the podcast. I don't think she doesn't follow me, so you're missing out now missing out but oh, if anybody wants to get word to her i'm sure maybe some of her friends listen um anyway there you go that is our bumper showbiz news rt debacle crop of stories and um, we hope we have been able to shed some light on the whole thing for you i doubt very much that it will be the last time that no. we discuss it um and i'll let you go now thanks Aoife. Thank even on a budget Quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes, until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at UH1.com. Mark O'Connell is an Irish author and essayist who's written for The New Yorker, The New York Times Magazine, The New York Review of Books, The Guardian, like all the best places you can think of, he has written there. His debut book, To Be a Machine, was published in 2017, followed by further notes from an apocalypse in 2020. Mark has been awarded the Welcome Book Prize and the Rooney Prize for Irish Literature. Guys, he's really smart and he's also my former colleague. <laughs> Mark and I worked together years ago and I have held him in such fondness ever since. I loved working with him um, and it's been great to watch his success. But I've actually never interviewed him before. But this new book that he has just released 
felt like something that you guys would be into. A Thread of Violence, a story of truth, invention, and murder, tells the story of one of Ireland's most infamous criminals via unprecedented access to the man himself. Uh, But what makes it extra special is Mark's brilliant writing and his narrative voice, which examines the moral challenge presented by using true crime for content. And I know that so many of you are big fans of true crime, and I'm sure you've had moments where you've questioned is it okay for me to be a fan of true crime? Is it okay for us to make content out of these things that happened to real people? Um, I really think you guys would love this book and I was delighted that Mark was up for, as he said, getting the gang back together. <laughs> um, I really hope you enjoy this conversation. Mark, before we started, we were just reflecting on how long it is since we've seen each other because you and I have a have a history. Um, <laughs> we work together. How long was it? It feels like it was for a long time, but actually I don't think it was that long. We worked together no. in a radio station as researchers on the same program. Um, in, in the time of the soul, it was, uh, it was <laughs> a long time, but in actual chronological time, I think, I think it was only about a year. <laughs> it feels like so long. It was such... You were there for obviously way longer than I was. I was sort of in and out. Yeah, well, radio was never going to be your thing, was it? Well, I don't... Yeah, I think it was... It was. A, I mean, I, I enjoyed it, actually. In in a way, it was like the most fun I ever had working. Because yeah. I had colleagues. Any time I've ever had in my yeah. life. Yeah. Beside each other, obviously, for pretty much an entire year, right? Yeah, I think we did. Yeah, yeah. It was um, it was such an intense, like, it was a really intense program to work on. Like, when I look back on it now, you know, as a 40-year-old, we were in our early 20s at the time. Like, the seriousness. Early 20s. I was in my, like, early to mid-20s, I think. I was... Yeah. So we were anyway, we were young. And like, I, I I remember being really impressed by like, I felt like you had an ability to not take it as seriously as I did. Like, not that you didn't take it seriously, but because you did and you were really good at it. Um, and let me tell you, the standards around there were pretty discerning. But um, I always felt like you were just like having more fun than I was. somehow. <laughs> Well, I think now that the dust has settled, it can be firmly said that you were a lot better at your job than I was. You were oh, I don't know about that. I don't know about that. You found you. Well, I think you were always going to be writing. I think that was always like even at the time. I remember um, because you were involved with Mongrel, right? The magazine. Right. Yeah, that was mm. extremely cool around that time. And um, some people might remember it. You, it was like a physical magazine, guys. It wasn't online. You had to go into a shop and pick it up. It was. It was. Thank cool. God it wasn't online because I. I'm very glad that some of the stuff that I wrote around then it's not does not exist in anything but like archival form for, you know, <laughs> gathering dust in those garages or whatever. Yeah, there's yeah, there's there was some stuff that like probably hasn't aged well, but at the time was, you know, subversive and, and making good points, I think. Mm. Yeah, no, I, I definitely look back on that period and especially the Mongol stuff as like uh weirdly formative, you know. Mm. Um because I was getting to do stuff that I there's no way I would have been able to do it had I been writing for like the Irish Times or yeah. what, you know, like doing kind of uh, reporting trips to the US. And actually, there was a weird bit of um, kind of uh, cross pollination between the stuff we were doing in News Talk and the stuff I did for Mongo. Yeah. Um, one or two things we had their genesis in like all about Barry Show conversation. <laughs> Yeah, what a time. What a time. I mean, I th- I always say I think I learned the most from that time in News Talk, those few years that I was there. Um in my entire career, I think I learned the most in that in that time. It was special. Like we were young and it was a startup and everybody was really passionate and I loved it. Um but since then it's been amazing to follow your career because you have just become so successful, Mark. You're like a real intellect. How does it feel? <laughs> did I not, did I not seem that way to you at the time? <laughs> 
<laughs> Did I take some kind of uh, vitamin pill or something? Um, well, no, I think maybe my idea of what an intellect was like was probably not like someone who was fun and like, you know, good crack. <laughs> but as it turns out, you can be a good crack and an intellect. It took me until I turned 40 to realize yeah. that. <laughs> it's, it's a rare combination, but it's out there. Um, what happened? Yeah. I mean, I get so when I left News Talk, I left. Well, mostly I, I left in order to leave News Talk, but I left in order to go back to uh, to college to yeah. do a master's and then a PhD. And that basically took up the rest of my 20s and like a little chunk of my early 30s as well. Mm. Um, that, I think like maybe it's a bit too easy or schematic or whatever, but I think that the combination of those two things, the like sort of mainstream journalism of of news talk and and the, the mongrel stuff uh that combined with like the intellectual stuff that i was doing for for several years uh as a phd student the, the sort of academic stuff the in, in a way i feel like those two things have kind of combined into whatever it is i do now you yeah know? i think they're, that they're, makes sense yeah I think that makes sense. Yeah. And for people who aren't familiar with your work, you, as I say, Mark is a proper intellect. He is an author of nonfiction, but it's not, it's, oh, sorry, I can't believe I was about to say something that is so bad. I was about to say it's not boring, like as if all of nonfiction is boring. And it's not at all. I love nonfiction. I've invented a whole new genre of well, nonfiction. I, <laughs> not boring. Yeah. Well, I do think though that your your books are different to, like, I, I how would you describe them? Um. I always I always get sort of tied up in knots when I try. Nonfiction has this weird problem of like, even even in the most basic way to, to describe the genre of nonfiction, it's a non-description. It's just it just means like literature that is not fiction. Exactly. Doesn't it, like it describes it in purely a negative sense. And any of the kind of more specific ways of talking about the kind of category that my work falls into, they're always really unsatisfying. Like literary nonfiction, yeah, literary journalism essays they're all kind of so vague and sort of unsatisfactory but yeah I don't I mean I don't really um I don't really have a good way of describing it I'm I always think of like I had a my my uh Italian publisher um a few years ago um the Italian publisher that published my first book uh it was a, this sort of legendary Italian publishing house called Adelphi and it was presided over by this um kind of you know equally legendary <clears throat> figure called Roberto Calasso, who's like this sort of giant of European letters. Uh, he, and he writes a very unique kind of sort of hyper-intellectual literary nonfiction. Um, and he came to Dublin for a festival event a few years ago. He died a couple of years ago, but he, he was here not that long before he died, just before the pandemic. And uh, I, I met up with him and we went for a walk around the city and we passed by Hodges Figgis and his book that had just been published in, in English was in the window. Uh, and I said, oh, Roberto, look, it's it's your book. And uh, he said, um, you know, if I was to go into the shop, what 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 section would my would my book be in? Because in, in Italy, they just have, you know, essays. All nonfiction is just really essays. They don't have right. these kind of specific marketing genres that we have here. Mm. And I said, I, you know, I don't know, but um, my books uh, tend to wind up in a section called smart thinking. <laughs> <laughs> So bemused by it, smart <laughs> thinking. And it, you know, for, we hung out for like the afternoon, and we were in his hotel having tea in the lobby. And he would just pause for a minute, and he, he would say, "What is this word again? Smart thinking." <laughs> he, was so, he was so sort of charmed and bewildered by it. 
But I feel like that kind of is accurate. Like that's that's kind of what it is. And look, we might as well talk about the new book because I feel like that'll give people a better understanding of of what what the kind of stuff that you do is. I was fascinated to read about this new um this new book. It's called a Threat of Violence, a Story of Truth, Invention, and Murder. And it is based around, honestly, a, a story that I was not super familiar with, but I know that a lot of people will be. Um, I have massive gaps in my knowledge of Irish history and like culture because of my time in America. So I think I was away for the majority of of what was going on here but it also happened the year that I was born so I, I don't know I missed it I, I know the kind of some of the names or the terms associated with it but I wasn't super familiar with it and um, and it is the the kind of the tale of Malcolm MacArthur um so I don't know if you want to briefly summarize uh, like what it is that happened and and how it is that this became the subject of this book yeah I think it's one of those things, like since you know when I started writing the book it became clear that there was a, a sort of a generational fault line in the sense that mm. Like people of, I would say roughly the age of 55 and older. So definitely my parents' generation, they mm-hmm. all remember really clearly. And they, you know, it's one of those things where they remember where they were when he was caught. And, but sort of when you start getting younger, it's sort of like my age, your age, younger. Um, it's kind of a throw of the dice as to whether people know. It. I mean, it is extremely famous. It's one of the, like, it's probably the most famous murder case in, in sort of modern Irish history, I yeah. would say. Um, but yeah, I mean, there's a couple of reasons why it's it's so well remembered. Basically, the the you know briefly the the story uh, is about this guy Malcolm MacArthur, who was um, kind of a well known socialite figure around around Dublin in the 70s and, and early 80s. Um, he was from a, a kind of a fairly well off landed gentry background in Meath, not Anglo Irish, not ascendancy. Mm. Um, but you know they were from they were from Scotland originally, and they were Catholic, so their position within that kind of social world was uh, a little complicated. But that that was kind of basically their social world. Yeah. And so he, you know, he had quite a lot of money from an inheritance um, that he lived off for most of his most of his life. And when he got to his late thirties, he ran out of money, and instead of you know uh, getting a job or finding some other way of, of making money, as most people would, he decided he was going to. Um, fund his lifestyle and, and by his lifestyle I mean really he, he kind of lived the high life as in he was you know he ate in good restaurants and he liked to enjoy company and you know drink wine and but he was really interested in what you would call the life of the mind he spent most of his time in libraries reading mm. scientific journals he was very interested in economics and mm. history and kinds of things and he just wanted to spend his time reading and thinking basically so in order to fund this kind of lifestyle um he decided he was going to pull off a, an armed robbery you know there was right. a lot of stuff at the time about um you know this was i guess the height of the troubles the ira yeah. would you know armed robberies tiger kidnappings those kinds of things and so he thought you know i'm a smart resourceful guy i can pull this off in the course of like attempting to pull off this this uh scheme he really brutally murdered two uh young people they were both 27 bridie gargan uh, who he beat to death with a hammer in the process of attempting to steal her car in the Phoenix Park. She was sunbathing in the park. Um, and uh, a young farmer named Donald Dunn in Edenderry, who he had arranged to buy a, a shotgun from him, mm. um, the, uh, a listing in, in the Farmer's Journal, and uh, he arranged to go meet him and, and buy a shotgun from him. And instead of, really inexplicably, instead of just taking the gun, yeah. uh, he was buying out the gun at the time. Uh, he he uh, Don had taken him to uh, a field just outside of Edenderry to sort of try out the gun. Mm. Uh, and instead of just 
taking it he shot him in the face and drove off in his car and, yeah I think uh, I think that's the thing about from reading this the story of what happened like those are the, like why the actual murders happened are the the two big questions like you know it was so unnecessary um yeah and the thing about MacArthur is that he very much sees himself as uh a highly rational person he's mm. sort of the most rational man in the room mm. as he sees himself um and yet these crimes make no sense yeah you know? yeah there's a broad broad way in which he can kind of make it make sense to himself but when you dig deep down into it as i do in the book mm. there's something completely meaningless and and arbitrary about about the murders themselves yeah so is that he was arrested yeah two weeks later very public manhunt and he was arrested in the home of uh the attorney general patrick Connolly, who was a friend of his and that's really what led to the big political scandal and yeah i mean it is wild the way you describe it that like you know the attorney general has you know his housekeeper setting up a bed for him and um mm. you know meanwhile he has just been on this kind of murder spree or crime spree yeah. anyway um it, it is an incredible tale just in that sense but then obviously this book is not just a telling of what happened um you know talk about how you came to kind of interact with malcolm MacArthur and how it became clear that this was going to be your next project yeah well i mean there is that aspect of the fact that it's you know in a sort of a quite blunt way uh an incredible story but yeah. there's a, a real tension at the center of the book between that idea of this being an incredible story and the kind of morality of, of yeah. telling it in this first place and uh and also that knowledge that it kind of it also doesn't make sense as a story you know mm. it's like the, the process of turning something into a narrative it is a way of 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 kind of whittling away all the nonsensical and, and meaningless elements of it. Um, but yeah, so I came to it through, um, I mean, I guess the reason I sort of, I, I don't want to say that like I've been obsessed with it for my whole life because that's simply not true. Uh, and that would be kind of to do a disservice to the complexity of my relationship with this. But yeah, my my grandparents lived in, uh, they lived basically next door to, to Patrick Connolly in the same um, apartment complex. They lived in the the building right next to it um so they were neighbors and they knew him fairly well not 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 they weren't close but they they knew him as a neighbor mm. um and uh so I, I grew up knowing that this thing had happened uh where my grandparents lived which is this place called pilot view in, in dorky right on the on the um the edge of the of dublin bay um and so yeah i was aware of this thing from a fairly young age that this thing had happened in this place and i was kind of fascinated by it but um after I left News Talk and when I went to do my PhD in Trinity, I did my PhD on John Banville, whose novels um, of three of them, actually four now, uh, are particularly his book, The Book of Evidence, mm. uh, which is uh, maybe his best book, I think, um, certainly probably his most famous anyway, uh, is loosely but very recognizably based on the MacArthur case. Yeah. So when I was doing that PhD, <clears throat> um, so I'd, I'd finished the PhD in 2012, but I was doing postdoc in Trinity. I was uh, I was um, working on turning my PhD into into a book for publication, and I would be working on this in the library, um, you know, reading about uh, Freddie Montgomery, the character based on on MacArthur, uh, writing about this fictional character, uh, and on a couple of occasions, you know, I left the library, and this was the, in the weeks after MacArthur got out of prison in 2012, and I would see him in mm. Trinity, he was walking around on the campus and I would just have this really strange sense of you know cognitive dissonance of there's Freddie Montgomery there's this fictional character yeah 
plot. It's it's Malcolm MacArthur, who is in his own way a kind of a fictionalized version of whatever the real, you know, the reality of this person is. Yeah. Um, I was really drawn in by that kind of strange tension between uh you know reality fictionalized versions of reality fictions um so that's kind of at the very center of the book as well yeah so you you approach him because you you start to see him around the place and Mm. I always think it's strange that experience in itself is quite strange and it's something that many of us will experience where you know you see someone once and then all of a sudden you see them everywhere like I actually have a friendship that started that way because I eventually went over to someone and was like you are everywhere I go (laughs) like we obviously are living very similar lives like let's introduce ourselves and then we can actually say hello next time um obviously yeah yeah, I'm kind of weird like that but um but you did that basically, but obviously with a different kind of um, a different yeah. kind of set of feelings I mean, around the conversation. Yeah, sure. I mean, it took years and years for yeah. me to actually realize that this was a, a book I wanted to write. Mm. Um, you know, there was a lot of things going on, one of which um, was ignorance on my part. You know, I, I had no idea. I mean, I thought it was strange that no one had ever written a book about MacArthur. No one had ever made a documentary about him in which he was interviewed and so on. But, you know, it became clear only after I decided I was going to write this book. And when I convinced my publisher that, you know, they should publish it, it only became clear at that point why he had never, why there had never been a book written about him, why he had never spoken publicly. And and the reason for that is that, you know, he he had been approached by any number of crime writers, uh, you know, um, authors, documentary filmmakers every he's kind of a white whale figure for mm. irish journalism and has been for uh at least you know 10 or 11 years since he got out um and i in my naivety just thought well i'll you know i'll bump into him on the street and i'll ask him to talk and he'll talk and i'll mm. get him for my book and it'll be interesting and uh first of all it was very difficult to find him because at the point where i decided uh i was going to write about you know write this book um the pandemic happened and Mm. you know he disappeared because everyone disappeared really Mm. Um, but i did eventually uh find him and yeah persuaded him to talk and and, you know the reason it was so difficult for him to talk and why he's never talked before is that he uh he's out on on license Mm -hmm. um sort of a peculiarity of of irish criminal law um Mm. you you know you you get life for a crime like murder um and when you are eventually released, you're released with these very specific conditions. And if yeah. you breach those, there's no hearing, there's no trial, you're just brought straight back in. So it's as though you're kind of on, you know, perpetually renewable temporary release. So that was always his rationale for not speaking to any of the people who approached him. Mm. Um, and I kind of felt that, you know, maybe my, I, I, I knew that he had a particular kind of sensibility mm. and I knew that he was probably likely to be quite snobbish mm. and that could present myself in a way you know I don't think of myself as a journalist despite my rigorous training in, in news talk <laughs> uh, as a um, I think of myself as an essayist and that's mm. partly uh, it's partly a kind of um, pretentiousness on my part but it's also there's something self-protective about it as well because I don't have the skills of a journalist you know I'm yeah. not like an but I wouldn't know. consider you a journalist either like it is different what yeah. you do it is it's quite different yeah it's a different yeah. approach um, and a journalist would have a very different kind of way of, of uh, interacting with yeah. him and getting from MacArthur. Um, so I kind of thought, you know, I, I can talk to him about the, the the way that I came to want to write about him, which was really the John Banville stuff. And yeah. uh, he was kind of intrigued by me. And I think, you know, as I say in the book, uh, quite 
sort of shamelessly I flattered his intellectual vanity I had this instinct that that might be the the way the to go that, yeah and yeah um and that, that was how it that was how it worked and so I spent um maybe a year and a half or so just having uh conversations with this man and trying to get to trying to get to the bottom of him in a way trying to get trying to make this insane story make sense you know mm. and um to try and figure out why he did what he did because there's you know there was no trial as such mm. um and this whole case is surrounded by in one way it's surrounded by noise there's like there's so much stuff around it there's like yeah. podcasts you know um books uh none of which he he has ever spoken for um and there's you know this constant kind of reiteration relitigation of the salacious details of mm. of what happened in 1982 anytime he goes to the shops there's a photographer there yeah and he ends up in the tabloids and uh you know even the way that i found him was completely absurd and, and quite unique to this case which is um there was a piece in in one of the tabloids uh a photograph of him uh, and an interview but the interview was not about anything to do with his crimes it was to do with you know the headline and i'll always remember it was um murderer double murderer macarthur supports lockdown regulations so he spoke yeah. about uh you know this was at the time the government's approach to lockdown he had a very sensible sort of yes of course we need lockdowns and you mm. know hopefully the vaccine um so that was kind of how, how i found him because i was able to um which like the idea that he would be someone that a journalist would go to to uh, to to ask his position on lockdown regulations yeah. is i know a yeah. real illustration i think of what you're talking about that ferrari right. around it yeah right. yeah um so yeah there's this combination of like, there's, there's all this kind of noise and constant sort of bringing up of, of the details of, of the case um but also like the silence, which, you know, mm. there was no trial as mm. such. He guilty to the murder of Bridie Gargan. He admitted to killing Donald Dunn. Mm. Um, there was the, you know, the the courts dealt with it in about five minutes. So the the, the trial itself was a, a, almost a non-event. Yeah. Um, no evidence heard. Yeah. Uh, victim impact statements, of course, were not a thing at the time. He wasn't even charged with the murder of Donald Dunn because he admitted to the to the murder of, of Bridie Gargan and they had witnesses they, it was very easy to to kind of get him on that so they thought you know he's going to get life for this let's mm. not even try him for for the murder of, of wow. donald dunn so you know from the point of view of of donald dunn's family it's as though i think that's a kind of an institutional violence it, yeah you know kind of a it's not an equivalent crime but it is it sort of deepens the wound in a way that it, yeah you know, absolutely that never tried yeah 100 um, so um so yeah, there is this strange uh, silence, and I wanted yeah. to, as I say in the book, I wanted to puncture that silence and try to get to something underneath. Yeah, um, I, a series of attempts to to do that. Yeah, I, I mean, I think you you mentioned earlier in our conversation, and I I want to come back to. Uh, I think one of the things that makes your book so special is that you do, um, you know, wrestle with the tension between these kinds of things being stories and you know look we live in a time where it never has true crime you know and I, I actually kind of hate even that expression but it has never been so popular so talked about you know so much content is made around it and um, but I think a lot of people do have a kind of discomfort with their own appetite for 
you know, murder is the way I hear a lot of my friends talk about it. I'm actually not a big true crime girly, no judgment. Um, but I think that there is a kind of debate within a lot of people about, you know, how appropriate is it to kind of, you know, be consuming this kind of content or the, the volume of it or the way that it's being produced and to kind of have you writing this and, and having that kind of conversation with yourself and to be able to go on that journey with you is, in my opinion, what makes this book so special. Um, where did you come down on it all? Like now, as you're talking about it all again, I I know you've been doing lots of interviews. You know, where do you sit yeah. with that now? I mean, it's interesting because like, the, you know, in a way that sort of touches on what we were talking about at the beginning in terms of genre, the, the book is basically being framed. Um, my, my British publisher uh, is very keen to frame it as not true crime, as yeah. like an anti-true crime book and, 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 a, and as a very literary kind of um, project, which I suppose it is. You it know, is, one yeah. avoid- um, In the US, true crime is less less of a dirty word, I think. And, mm. and there is a tradition of very literary, you know, true crime and, and sort of, you know, literary nonfiction is, I would say, you know, kind of formatively linked with with true crime in the sense of, you know, books like In Cold Blood and, and Norman Mailer's The Executioner Song. Like these are serious kind mm. of literary endeavors. Um, so in the US, it's, it, there's more of a culture of it. So I think my, my publisher there is, is less kind of shy of saying, yes, this is literary true crime, but it is true crime. I'm like, I'm not a big fan of the true crime genre. I don't have issues with it as such. You know, I just, I'm not, it's not inherently what I'm interested in as, yeah. as a uh, And I'm always doing this. I always write books in genres that I don't really care about. You know, my <laughs> first book got framed as popular science. I've never read a popular science book in my life. Yeah. I a book with, I guess, some kind of nature writing politics hybrid mm-hmm. or whatever. Neither things are particularly interesting to me. But yeah, that's just the, that's my, <laughs> my fate, I suppose. But um, yeah, like I'm not, uh, so the book, the book has, to the extent that it's being discussed in you know publicly so far, a lot of the kind of discussion around it is the extent to which it's at odds with the true crime genre and how mm. it's you know almost being framed as a kind of an argument with with true crime. And I think that's interesting because may- maybe it is that, but that was not what I set out to do. You know, mm. I, I don't have enough of a grounding in true crime and and the kinds of true crime that you're talking about the podcast and so on. I mean, there are certain things that I was certainly guided by um mm. west Cork, the west cork podcast i think was brilliant yeah which is excellent family. yeah yeah sam of course is also an ex-mongrel person i know i've the, i've never forgotten that mark <laughs> yeah uh, and that's like a masterpiece i think it's it it's is. truly it is. um but also you know that's quite guided by doubt as well and uncertainty mm. you know and they're, they're i mean it's a different kind of project in that that's an unsolved mm. murder essentially um and they never come down hundred percent on who they think did it or whatever yeah um, another book that i was very guided by or a book that i was guided by in, in this which is um a french <clears throat> a french writer named emmanuel Carrere who wrote this book called the adversary mm-hmm. which i think is just a uh it's not just one of the best true crime books i've, I've ever encountered but you know one of the best nonfiction books and mm-hmm. uh yeah so you know i did have certain kind of um certain kind of uh, models in mind but yeah, for the most part, I'm not deliberately engaging with the true crime genre mm. uh, and have uh, deliberately an argument with it. I'm sort of having an argument with myself. In yeah. I mean, this, this makes the book sound really kind of, you know, uh, self-obsessed. and. You know, no, and it's not. But I think I think what it is, is it's personal. And, you know, you're you're on a journey with you, um, which is, in my opinion, like what makes it what I would never pick up like a classic 
true crime book, you know, whatever. But like, you know, being on the journey with you through this and kind of, you know, going with you on your thought process and and those kind of debates that you were having with yourself. And they're not debates. Like even, you know, all of the terms we're using here are kind of inaccurate. But um, I think yeah. that that's what makes it special. And I can understand, you know, I think it could be categorized in lots of different ways. And, and you know, maybe it doesn't really need to be categorized. I think anyone who who likes to read honestly will like this book like you know I don't think you have to be one thing into one thing or another you know I'm not a big true crime girly as I said but I really enjoyed this I enjoyed learning about Malcolm MacArthur and learning about the story but also you know mainly I enjoyed being on the journey with you and that's I think what makes your work special is that you know we do get glimpses of it and I think there's more of more of it even um in this book which I personally loved Oh, well, thank you. I mean, you, people have sort of said that, and I, I'm almost surprised to hear it, but of course it makes sense. There is more of me in this book. Mm. Uh, and I think that's by virtue of the fact that, you know, it, the book is a lot of things, but one of the things that it certainly is, is an exploration of, uh, in one sense, the relationship between me and this person, Malcolm MacArthur. Mm. Uh, but in a broader sense, it's an exploration of what it is to be a nonfiction writer and what it is to, like, that relationship between the writer and the subject mm. is in in almost all cases quite morally fraught but in this mm. particular kind of case extremely morally fraught yeah. you know because i'm telling for better or worse i'm telling a story about a murderer i'm not telling his story in the sense that i am allowing him to dictate the frame of the narrative but it, the story is about him yeah uh, it's a series of kind of conflicts around how the story gets told it's you know uh, and I struggle with, on the page in the book, I struggle with the kind of morality of doing it in this way and mm. what that means about like turning him into a character, think, yeah. like thinking of this as, you know, a great story, all yeah. these kinds of, things. and also, you know, the the lives of, of the victims. Yeah. What how, how do you like negotiate the morality of the fact that, you know, and this is, it's 40 years ago, but it's not that long and, no. you know, a trauma like this is still very uh alive yeah. in in the lives of um the families of the victims so all of these kind of moral questions are yeah sort of quite hot to the touch and i think that is a big part of the book yeah you know? i mean absolutely um well i really loved it and i think that loads of you will love it which is why i asked mark to come on um I like not just because we used to work together in East Talk, even though that was a, a, a glorious you never time had for my previous books. Well, I didn't have a podcast then, Mark, you know. <laughs> <laughs> um, it was a very different very different situation then um, okay uh, so Mark O'Connell thank you so much the book is A Thread of Violence A Story of Truth Invention and Murder it's out now in Ireland if you're in the UK or America you have to wait I think it's the end of August it'll come out then um, so it came out in the US this week oh it came out in the US um, this week sorry it's a weirdly staggered publication schedule but uh, anyway yeah. Yeah. wherever you are I hope you will get your hands on it because it is great Mark it's been a joy to catch up with you and um, I'm I'm just loving seeing all of your success thank you Louise same <laughs> to you <laughs> well
Well, there you go. That's it, my friends. Don't forget, feedback, welcome always. I mean, you can tweet me, you can Instagram me, you can contact me in any number of ways. I'm Louise Makshari and all of those platforms. But you can also send a voice note to 089-209-6423. That's 089-209-6423. Before I go, a couple of quick recommendations. I've been watching and enjoying Platonic on Apple TV+. This is a TV series with Seth Rogen and Rose Byrne. You may remember they were in... Um, Neighbors together is that what it was called? The show where Seth Rogen, not Seth Rogen, Zach, Zach. Oh my God, what is his name? Why does this happen to me? I feel like this happens every week at this time. Zach Efron is like the head of a charity, head of a charity, head of a fraternity, and they live next door to Seth Rogen and Rose Byrne. And it seems, I mean, I haven't read into it, but obviously they had a good time because um, they came up with this TV show where basically Seth and Rose are old college friends and they had a falling out and uh, they come back together uh, to kind of reignite their platonic friendship. It's just lots of fun. It's the kind of stuff that you you don't really see via tv series it's it feels like a movie but there's lots of little episodes so i'm really enjoying it it's on apple tv plus as i said my other recommendation my friends is that you pre-order the new ashling book as you know Imer McGlyson, one of the co-authors, um, is one of my best friends. I love Sarah Breen as well. And um, you hear Emer often on this story, Talking Celebs. She is brilliant. They are brilliant. This book is brilliant. Pre-order it now. And there's lots of prizes up for grabs. And um, pre-ordering is really helpful to authors. So if you think you're going to buy the book, and let's be honest, you are. It's so good. And if you haven't read any of the Ashing books yet, please do it for yourself. They are just like a warm hug, like so enjoyable. Um, but yeah, get yourself ready because it's coming. And um, yeah, if you're going to buy it anyway, you might as well pre-order it and do the girls a favor. So I'll put a link in the show notes as well. So I'm going to go now. Um, I really hope you've enjoyed this episode. I hope it has been useful for you. Um, all feedback welcome as always. I will talk to you next Friday. Thank you so much to ACAST for having me on the network. Thanks to my contributors. And thank you so much for listening. I so appreciate it. I can't thank you enough. I hope you have a good week. But if you can't have a good week and they can't all be good, my friends, just put one foot in front of the other and we will be chatting again next Friday. Talk to you then. Small details are big surfaces, tight corners are odd shapes, flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rustolium. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack. 
for free shipping and 365-day returns.